We want to shift our question now to why I'm a Christian, because like Anthony Flew, I could be a theist, I could believe in the existence of God, but not be a Christian. There are many religions in the world, and I could be Muslim, I could be Hindu, I could be Buddhist, I could be Jewish, I could believe in the existence of God, but not follow a Christian uh, belief system, not believe in, in the Christian way. So I'd like to talk about why I believe that Christianity is the true, the true way. Um, and I wanna say here something about, uh, about doubt. And like Jim was saying, you know, sometimes we have some of these things and we have question marks. And uh, don't be, it's, it's, not a, it's not a sin to have doubt. Uh, actually, probably the person who has the strongest faith is the person who had doubts and pursued answers. Jesus never condemned anybody for doubting. Like he, like Thomas, think about Thomas. Thomas said, well, unless I can put my finger in the nail marks in his hand and I put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And, and when Jesus showed up, he didn't say, okay, Thomas, that's it for you. Like you, you got to just trust and believe here. Like you, no, he said, here, here, here you go. Here's, here's, go ahead, put your finger in my hands, put your hand in my side. Um, because the difference between doubt and unbelief is what God does condemn is unbelief. And the difference between doubt and unbelief, doubt is I have questions and I'm willing to believe, but I, I, I just have some questions I'd like to have answered. Unbelief is I don't need any more information. I already decided I just don't believe it. I'm done. I'm, you, you can tell me whatever you want, but I, I'm not believing it. So the children of Israel, when they were ready to go in, cross the Jordan River and go into Canaan and the spies came back and they decided they weren't going, it wasn't doubt, it was unbelief. They, they had the promises of God and Joshua and Caleb told them, God will give it to us, we can do it. And they were like, nope, we don't believe it. We're not, we know all that, but we're not going. And so I just encourage you when you have doubts to pursue answers and to, uh, to ask, don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, because we don't have a belief system that is too fragile to be questioned. Uh, you, can, you can have questions, and there are answers. And um, I believe that, uh, and the central point of Christianity, if Christianity really is true, the central point then comes down to who is Jesus. And that is, that is the center of, uh, of Christianity. I was in uh, Thailand a number of years ago and we were visiting with a man who was a Buddhist and, and uh, he was an English teacher so his English was quite good and we were talking and he had read the Bible and he was saying he really likes Jesus. He really likes Jesus' teaching. He thinks Jesus was, had some really good things and, and he really likes Jesus. And we were saying, well, you should become a Christian. You should, you know, if you like Jesus and you like the things that Jesus taught, you should, you should become a Christian. And he was like, well, he can't um, this time. Maybe next time he'll, 
he'll do that. And then we realized, oh, he's talking about maybe in his next lifetime, he'll, uh, he'll, be, he'll try Christianity next time in his next lifetime. We were saying, no, no, there is no next time. Like, this is the, there's only one, and, and you need to you know, make, if, make that decision now. But it, Christianity centers around the question of who is Jesus. And I, I will tell you that, like my friend said, you know, a lot of people just kind of, they adopt the belief system in which they were raised. And, but a lot of us also came to a, come to a crisis point, is this really true? And is what I've been taught really true? And for me, that crisis point came, I probably had my greatest faith crisis when, um, when my mother was passing away. Um, she got cancer and was diagnosed with cancer and about six weeks or two months later she passed away. We knew she was dying. She knew she was dying. And I just really struggled with, I, this is my mom. Like she's, she's, uh, she's dying and uh, in a few weeks she's not going to be here. Where is she going to be? And how do I know that what I have been taught is really true? Is she going to be with Jesus? Is, is that really true? And I want to know. And I struggled with faith questions at that point in my life, probably more than, than any, other, any other time in my life. And some of what I'm going to share with you this morning is a result of kind of where I came out with those, with those questions and kind of where I ended up in that quest for uh, is this, is Christianity really true. Well, who did Jesus claim to be? Some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be the Son of God. It's just later that people kind of made that claim for him. But <clears throat> let's just run through some of these in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. Talk about Jesus, but he held his peace and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory, clearly saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. In John chapter 10, verses 30 and 33, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. It, the Jews didn't have a question about whether Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why they were going to, that's why they were going to kill him. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 7 is sometimes called the gospel in a nutshell. It's kind of the, the very, the core components of the gospel message. Paul says, For I deliver unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then of the twelve. And after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. So we go back here. Let's just go back to this John 14 claim. Um, 
maybe four years ago, I was in Bangladesh visiting our daughter there, and, and um, she's working in a, a refugee camp of uh, the Rohingya the Muslim people there. They have a man that works in their clinic that is, um, he has the theological training to be an imam. He's, he's not an imam, but he, he has the theological training to be an imam, so he really knows the Islamic religion well, but he's intrigued by Christianity and there's an organization there that is having him proofread the Gospel of Mark, the translation of the Gospel of Mark they're doing. So he, and he was telling, so anyway, the, the staff men there said they want to have a conversation with him. He likes to talk about faith issues and they want to have a conversation with him and they're going to have lunch with him and they asked me to go with them to have a conversation with him about faith. And so we had this, this um, couple of hour lunch together. I had some questions for him about Islam and, and then we talked about Christianity. Um, and um, in part of that, uh, uh, and anyway, he was saying that, you know, in, when you are analyzing a translation, you're not just looking at, you know, the, the words and how do you, but you also, you want to understand what was the author trying to communicate? What was, what's the, what's the message here? And you want to make sure that the author's intent comes through. And so he said, I'm trying to understand what was the author of Mark trying to communicate? And what's the, uh, what was, what was he thinking? And what was, what was he trying to say? And I want to make sure that that, that remains true in this, in this translation. So he's really thinking about these things and, and, um, and we had some, some long conversations. The only time he got upset with me was, well, I told him, okay, basically, I mean, his thing was Jesus was a good teacher. He was, he was, he was a prophet. He was a good teacher. He was a really good man. But he was not, he was not divine. He was not the son of God. And Muhammad is God's prophet, and he was kind of the final revelation of God to mankind and so on. And, uh, but anyway, I told him some of these claims of Christ. We looked at John chapter 14. And I told him Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be divine. He, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So you have, you have, you have three choices. Either Jesus was insane and he thought he was God, but he wasn't. One of our daughters worked in a, a mental institution for a period of time and there was a man there that thought he was God and uh, she asked him one day well if you're God like what are you doing here he said well sometimes he has to rest because God has a lot of things to do and so he comes here to rest so he was resting right then uh, so that's one possibility maybe Jesus was insane and he thought he was God but he wasn't secondly maybe he knew he wasn't God but he was a deceiver and he was lying and he was trying to make people believe he was God, but he wasn't. And he knew it. He was totally sane, but he was just a deceiver. The third option is that he really was the son, he really is the son of God. And so I was saying to this man who had the training to be an imam, if he was a deceiver, you can't say he was a good man. You can't say he was a teacher. If he was insane, you can't say he was a good man and he was a teacher. So your, your premise is flawed uh, in being able to say he was a good teacher and he was a good man because if, 
there are no, if either of those two options are true, if he was insane or he was a deceiver, they, he's not a good man. Your other option is he really is the son of God. And that kind of changes everything. And then when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. If he is the only way to God, because he is God, that, that kind of changes everything. And that's when he got upset with me and he said, you can't say that. He's saying, everybody, Muslims, Jews, Christians, all people of the book are gonna be okay. And you can't say that just because somebody's not a Christian, they're not gonna be okay in eternity. Well, but that's our premise. That's our belief, right? We believe that Jesus is the only way. There is only one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, on, what convinces me that that's really true? How, how do I, and for me, in my uh, thoughts and questions about the identity of Jesus, the thing that settled it for me was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that the resurrection really happened as a historical event. And if the resurrection happened, that to me proves the validity of the claims of Christ and that what he said is really true. So I ha there's a lot of things about scripture that I can't explain. You can ask me a lot of questions that I don't have answers for, but I'm willing to live with a lot of unanswered questions because I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'm willing to stake my eternal destiny on that belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I wanna look at some evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, if you're gonna have a resurrection, you have to have a death. So there are people that say, well, he didn't really die. Uh, he, uh, he just kind of fainted and went into a coma and they thought he was dead. And, and then, uh, you know, they buried him and a couple days later he kind of came to and, and came out. And, and, but he didn't really die. Um, but his death was certified by a Roman centurion. Like he didn't get ill and pass away, he was executed by the government. These people were professional executioners. If you were to say that Jesus didn't die, it would be like saying, probably many of you are too young to remember Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City bomber, but that was back in the 1980s, I think. But anyway, he bombed this building and, and I forget how many people were killed and he was tried and, and he was executed, put in the gas chamber. It would be like if you would say, no, Timothy McVeigh didn't really die. Like, yeah, they put him in the gas chamber, but he just sort of passed out and he got just enough of gas to make him pass out and then, and that, but he's living in Argentina and he has a nice life down there and he's really, he's really a good guy now and, and he didn't really die. And if you, if you came around saying that, people would say, you're crazy, man. When the government kills people, <laughs> they know they're dead. Like, they're not coming out of the gas chamber in a coma. Like, it's just not gonna happen, right? And the same thing is true for Jesus. He, he, wasn't, he was killed by professional executioners. 
And when the centurion came to Pilate, or they came and asked for the body of, of Jesus, Pilate was like, well, is he dead already? And the centurion comes in and says, yeah, he's, he's, he certified his death. So we have the death of Jesus confirmed by the professional executioner. Then you have the early record of the resurrection. The, the Gospels were written very soon after the resurrection. And uh, so the Gospel of Mark was written within five years of the resurrection and the entire New Testament except some of John's writings were written within 40 years of the resurrection. So it was, the Gospels were written too soon after the event for them to be legends. Uh, because there were people, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, he was seen by, he names Peter, he names James, and by 500 people all at one time, many of them are still alive. What he was saying was, there are people who are living today who have seen Jesus, they've encountered him after his resurrection. And you can go talk to them. Here's some names. Go talk to Peter. Go talk to James. They saw him. Uh, there are other people that are alive that saw him. And so all if the Jews would have wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, all they would have had to do was to say the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, they're not true. And he's, he didn't rise from the dead. And these things are not made up stories. They're not legends. You know, it takes about a hundred years for a legend to be viable uh, after an event. So there are supposed gospels. There's like the Gospel of Thomas that uh, was probably written by about 125 years after the resurrection of Christ. The Gospel of Thomas the account of the resurrection is more the language of, of legends. There's this angel that comes down from heaven and there's a big cross coming out of the angel's head and the angel says, yay, behold, and there's all these big pronouncements and the resurrection happens and that's the language of, of legends. But the gospels, they just kind of tell it like it is. Uh, and even some things that are in the gospels aren't even, they probably detracted from people actually believing what they were writing. They, they, I mean, if, if you were going to write a, a story, if you were the disciples and you were thinking that you are going to, to start a new religion and you're going to have this story about your leader rising from the dead, you would probably make yourselves the hero of the story, right? You'd be like, yeah, we knew it was going to happen, and so we went over there Sunday morning. We're just sitting there waiting, you know, for the resurrection because we really believed, and sure enough, there he came, and we saw it, and they went. If it was, it was a lie, uh, I think it would be written a little differently. But anyway, this thing about legends, you know, today, uh, what, we're 23 years, or we'll be 23 years this year after 9-11, um, after well, it's still too, too soon after 9-11 for conspiracy theories to gain much traction. I know there are people out there who say, well, you know, it was all faked and it was fake videography by 
the government or somebody and, and it wasn't really true. But those, le those conspiracy things don't gain much traction because there's too many people still in New York City who were on the street who saw the planes coming and hitting the buildings. A hundred years from now, a legend or conspiracy theories about 9-11 might be a lot more viable because everybody will be dead that was, that was uh, on the street at that time. But today there are eyewitnesses. And when the Gospels were written, there were eyewitnesses alive who had seen these things happen, who had, who had met Jesus after his resurrection. And so it couldn't be, it couldn't be a fake. Then you have uh, the empty tomb. The Jews, the empty tomb was never denied by the Jews. The best explanation the Jews could come up with wasn't that the tomb wasn't empty, it was that somebody stole his body. And they paid the guards to spread that story because they had no other, they had no other story. Jesus didn't die in a private thing like he was crucified along the street in a public place with an audience he was buried people knew where he was buried because the jews went and asked for a guard to be put by the tomb there was a guard by the tomb and you know how things you know how things go when there's big public when there's big public things happening right like everybody wants to see it a couple of years ago the water got really high. We don't have the kind of floods you have around here where you have rivers and, you know, kind of a flood lasts two or three days. Like, we have a lot of lakes, so, but the water kept coming up and up and up, and we have a property that's kind of close to the lake, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's quite a bit. I mean, it's just, it's not in any danger of being flooded, but anyway, the water kept coming up and coming up, and every day it would come up another four or five inches, and, then it was coming up the driveway and going toward the garage. And my wife was saying, we're all like, we got to go over there and get stuff off the floor of the garage. Like, I was saying, we're not, like, that water's not going to come in the garage. Like, we don't, no, we don't have to do that. And, and then finally one day she shamed me enough. She said, well, she's going over to put stuff up. And I'm like, okay, well, I better go help. So we went and we got stuff up off the floor. But you know, that water kept coming up and coming up and it came into the garage. And the lake rose like, ah, it was like eight or nine feet that the... Uh, the lake came up and and so we're sandbagging around the garage and and around the house and and oh, we did hundreds of sandbags and and uh, well you know everybody's talking about it right so people are coming the street is closed because there's I mean the water on the street was more than waist deep and so the streets closed but there was a st steady stream of cars they come down right drive right up to the barrier kind of look you know and, and one of the neighbors there he's saying they ought to block the whole street off. Like, we don't, need, we don't need tourists here. Like, we got enough problems trying to keep water out of our buildings. We don't need people. But people were coming to look. They want to see it. I'm kind of guessing that if you were alive at the time of the death of Jesus and then you heard about the resurrection and the empty tomb, I'm kind of guessing there's some families that, hey, let's go over this afternoon and check it out. Like, let's go look at it. Uh, see if it's really true. And so people, I just think there were people that, that, saw it and it, it was it was obvious that uh, the tomb was was empty well then there's the fact that the resurrection was um, discovered by women and this is one of the things that made their story less believable because in the Jewish 
legal system, the testimony of a woman wasn't accepted because women weren't considered to be viable witnesses. They, their testimony wasn't considered to be reliable. The, the view of women was quite different than what it is today. One of the Jewish scholars back at that time, he said, I thank God that I wasn't born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. And that was kind of their, that was kind of their view. And so uh, if the uh, disciples wanted to create a story, they would have had themselves discovering the, the, the empty tomb. They, the men would have went and found it. The fact that women found it and came and told them made it less believable to the people of the time who were reading it. And so I just think that they wrote what actually happened and they, they wrote an accurate account. And people say, yeah, well, you know, some skeptic, I was just reading a thing the other day where um, um, an atheist was saying, so what's your favorite biblical contradiction? And another thing that came up most often in people's comments was the differences in the accounts in the gospels of of the resurrection. Well, you just have four different people uh, writing about the same event. If if we witnessed a, a car accident out here um, and there were four of us that saw it and then you would a week later say, tell me what happened, there would probably be some, some minor differences in the story, but we'd all agree that an accident happened. Uh, on the basic elements of it, we would agree. So you have some of that in the Gospels. There's a little differences in the account, but the basic fact of the resurrection isn't disputed uh, by, by any of them. Then the verifiable appearances of Christ after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to people who knew him, people that had been with him. Uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, you have a family member that passes away and then a month or two later you're in Walmart and all of a sudden you see somebody you think, Oh, and then you realize, no, it's not them. Like, and, but for a moment, you thought it was them. But the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were not like that. Uh, like, he came, he sat down, he ate with them, he talked to them. And they weren't hallucinations by one or two people. Paul says he was seen by 500 people at one time. So 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. So the post-appearance resurrections of Jesus are part of what convinces me that it is, uh, is true. And then the faithfulness of the disciples. Here you have 11 men who, if it wasn't true, if Jesus hadn't really risen from the dead, then how can you get 11 people to die for a lie? Uh, think about it. You think about scandals in our lifetimes. You think about political scandals or FIFA or whatever. You know, something happens and misbehavior starts to, untruths begin to be uncovered. And eventually, if there's a group of people involved, eventually one of them, if they're threatened on, with going to prison, <laughs> or they're threatened with, in some way, somebody is going to say, well, let me tell you what really happened. 
And then once one person says that, then the rest are like, okay, well, I don't want to go to jail either. And so everybody starts telling the truth and, and it really comes out. These men, all except the Apostle John, these men were all martyred. These men were all killed for their faith. And even on the, at the threat of death, not one of them said, hey, guys, like, don't kill me. It was just a joke. Like, we, it, was, it was a fake. It was a lie. We didn't, it's not really true. No, he didn't really rise from the dead. Let me tell you the true story. Not one of them. And I just don't think you would find... I don't think 11 people would go to their deaths for the sake of a lie. It just doesn't, it's just not logical. It doesn't make, doesn't make sense to me. Well, let's talk about the importance of the resurrection. So let me say one thing. Some of those things are, some of those things are the, the things that convinced me that the resurrection really happened. And if the resurrection happened, that changes everything. Uh, my friend that I was telling you about before who was talking to me about matter and, and how the whole universe started and, and creation things. One day we were together and, and uh, he was saying to me, I don't get you religious people. Like, you know, you guys, like, you're just like, there's the Kiwanis Club and the Lions Club and, and whatever else there is. And he was saying, you know, but they're all trying to make the world a better place. They're all trying to do good things in the world. And he's saying, you religions, like you're all, you're all just trying to make the world a better place. And so there's Islam and Buddhism and Christianity and all these world religions. And he's saying, but I don't get it. Like you guys take it really seriously. Like you actually want to kill each other. And he said, I just don't, I just don't understand it. And um, I told him, well, I would agree with you except for one thing. And that is, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that changes everything. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he really is the Son of God. And I have the possibility of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, I just don't accept your statement that all religions are the same. And he said, well, but why do, get, why, why do people get so heated about it? He said, you know, you can't even have a conversation. Now, he said, you and I, we've been talking for 30 minutes and we're okay. But he said, most people, they get so angry that you can't even talk to them. And he's saying, why is it that way? And so, well, stop and think about it, Simon. Uh, if you would accept what I'm saying to be true, and you would believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that he is the only way to God and that God really exists, you would have to change your whole way of life. Everything would change. And you don't really want to do that. So, you, so yeah, if I tell you that, you get upset. If I were to accept your belief system and believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and that God doesn't exist, it would shatter the very foundations of my life. I wouldn't know how to live anymore. And, and so, yeah, it's a big deal. And it is the central question. Is Jesus really who he said he is? Did he rise from the dead? Because the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. We're still in our sins. And everything is, everything is lost. It's, it's all futile. It's the central thing. And the, the exciting thing about Christianity and the resurrection from the dead is that 
Christ won the victory over death and over sin. And he opened up the way for us to have the forgiveness of sins and, and to enter into a relationship with him and to, to look forward to being in eternity with him and to have uh, an eternal existence with the Lord Jesus. That's amazing. A few years ago, there were, when I was in Thailand at Igo, there was a, 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 a Buddhist monk that came to a world religions class to talk about Buddhism. And uh, I was having a conversation with him, and, and, and he was saying that uh, uh, as monks, they get together and they talk about uh, things that they've done. Part of their, their monk chat is they talk about things that they've done that they ought not to have done. And and uh, uh, mistakes that they've made. And, and I ask him, so what's the purpose of that? Like when you share with each other the wrong things that you've done and the bad things that you've done, like do you get forgiveness for them then? Do you get absolved of the guilt of those things? Or what's the purpose of sharing them? And he's like, oh, no, no, they don't get forgiveness. He said, we're just reminding ourselves that we've already done so many bad things in this lifetime that we can't expect to be born better next time. So you think about that. If there was, if Jesus didn't die for our sins, if there is no forgiveness of sins, what would that be like? And you know, most Christians from Buddhist background that I know that came, converted to Christianity from Buddhism did so because of the forgiveness of sins. Because if there is no forgiveness of sins, if we're just going through life and we're accumulating this uh, burden of sin and there's nothing to do about it except to be born in a lesser life form next time and then somehow pay for our mistakes in this lifetime and then we're going to make life mistakes in that lifetime like how is it and so the goal of buddhism is to get off of that endless rebirth cycle and to get into nirvana and get away from that um we uh, i was talking to a, a sikh uh person one time and he was saying that in their religion they've their theologians have analyzed it and and they've reached the conclusion that he had a whole graph of all the different levels of life forms and he was saying our theologians have determined that you have to have lived at least 125,000 lifetimes in order to be born human and you know seek Buddhism, Buddhism, Hinduism, like they're looking for a way off of this endless reincarnation and just getting off of the cycle. But in our Christian faith, we have the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scripture that says it's uh, given unto man once to die and after that the judgment and so there is only one lifetime and then uh, we return to our, our creator. But going back to the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection you can't stage your own resurrection. There are people who have made a lot of claims, people that have done some pretty amazing things, some supernatural things. But when you're dead, you're dead. You can't resurrect yourself. And so the resurrection had to come from a power outside of himself. And God confirmed the identity of Jesus Christ by his resurrection. So you think about um, back in the, uh, when the children of Israel were in the, uh, the wilderness and 
and Dathan and Abiram and, and, and they had their rebellion against Moses and Aaron and they were kind of like you guys have taken too much power on yourselves you're you've um, uh, you know you've got this brother sister thing going on you and Miriam and you're just kind of ruling over us and so uh, there's all we all have the spirit of God like you should spread out the authority a little more and and um, and so um, Moses says to God you know don't hear them and and so um, anyway there's there the earth opens up and swallows them and they're gone and and um, the next day and the people all ran away saying we're all gonna die and, but the next day the people came back and they said to Moses and Aaron you killed God's people and then Moses was really scared and uh, and and Moses really went to the Lord and and, and then the Lord said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to settle this question of who, like, who's the high priest and whether that position kind of gets shared out or passed around. So here's what you do. I want you to get a rod from the leader of each tribe and one from Aaron and put them in the tabernacle. And the rod that buds, that's going to be the person who is, uh, is high priest. And... So Moses collects the 12 rods. And when you think about those 12 rods, like these weren't, uh, they didn't go out and kind of whack a branch off a tree and bring it and say, here, here's my, my rod. No, these guys were shepherds. Like rods were their tools. So they had used them for years. They were smooth. They were dead. They had, it, it was like if you were going to have an ordination and Jim would say, all right, I want each of you men to bring an axe handle or a hammer handle, a wooden one, and we're going to put them here in the church. Next Sunday, we'll come back and see if any of them have budded. You say, man, that's insane. Like, they're not gonna, nothing's going to grow out of those things. Like, they're, they're axe handles. They're not, they're not going to grow. They're dead. Uh, but they put those rods in the temple, and the next morning, they came back, and Aaron's rod had not only budded. It wasn't like they got it out of the tabernacle, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe there's a green spot here or there. No, they brought it out. It had grown branches it had it hadn't only budded it had grown branches it had blossomed it had mature almonds on it in one night it had gone through a full reproductive cycle to where it had grown branches and blossomed and had had almonds on it and there was no question Aaron was the high priest he was going to be the high priest there wasn't going to be two or three or four of them it was going to be Aaron and in the same way when Jesus' dead body was put in the tomb, the centurion didn't think he was coming back out. The disciples didn't think he was going to rise. They went into hiding. They were scared. They thought they were going to be next. But in a moment of time, the power of God came and resurrected the body of Jesus and took him through a whole healing cycle that the next, that day, he's walking around. He's talking to Mary. He's He's, he's functional. Like with what he went through, he should have been in bed for about three months just convalescing and getting over all the wounds and letting the scabs heal and all that kind of stuff from the, the scourging and stuff he had experienced. He should, have, he, he should have been in bed for a long time, but in a moment of time, God raised him from the dead, healed him, and he's walking around talking and functioning. And God confirmed, this is my son. He is who he said he is. And because I'm convinced that the resurrection happened, 
as an actual historical event, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the living son of God. And so there are a lot of things that I can't explain, but I am convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and I am willing to stake my eternal destiny on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he became the first fruits of the dead. And that just as he was resurrected from the dead, so we also will die and be buried, but our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will live eternally in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who won the victory over sin and over death, and he then becomes my Lord and Savior. I recognize him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has my allegiance. I will follow him at all costs. I'm not turning back. I'm not turning to the right or the left. I, I have no plan B for eternity. And I have heard from people sometimes that were elderly that in their last days, in their last years, they faced some of their most intense, intense faith struggles because they were facing death and they really struggled with, is it true and, 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 and what's going to happen to me? And when I close my eyes here, what, what's really going to happen? Um, and I had a friend, David Hershberger, who was a missionary in northwestern Ontario for uh, a little over 50 years, I think, but he had cancer and was passing away and, and um, um, knew he was going to be dying. And I was with David one day and I said to David, you know, I hear that sometimes people at the end of life really face intense questioning and face struggles. And I'm just wondering, how is that for you? Like, are there things we ought to talk about or things you'd like to discuss? And he was like, no, Merle, I, I, don't, have, I, don't, have any, I don't have anything else that I can put my faith in. This is what I believe and I'm committed. I've committed my eternal destiny to the Lord Jesus Christ and I don't have anything else. I don't have any way, other way of explaining things. I don't have any other thing that I can put my faith in. And so I'm going into eternity with my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage you this morning that being a Christian is a choice. Like, you're not here, I hope, because, well, it's just the way it is, and we're Christians, and, you know, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Hindu, so I'm Christian, so, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll do that. No, it's a choice. It's a faith decision where you look at the evidence of, and of the identity of Jesus Christ, and you recognize he really is God, and that God became flesh and he dwelt among us and then he died for our sins and we have the opportunity to have the forgiveness of sins and to come to him and to, 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 to find the cleansing from our sins and that we don't have to live under the bondage of sin. We don't have to live like our addiction is to Jesus Christ and we are sold out to him and we're committed to him and everything else pales 
in existence. So it's like the parables of, of the pearl of great price or uh, where we've discovered this thing of tremendous value. And, you know, Jesus' initial message when he started preaching was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when we realize who Jesus is and what all he has in store for us, if we commit our lives and ourselves to him, it's like we're willing to leave everything else and say that's all insignificant, that's all nothing because I know Jesus. I know who he is. And I know that he has the power over sin. He has the power to forgive sins. He has power over the supernatural world. He has power over death itself. And so I no longer need to fear the supernatural world. I no longer need to fear the spirits. I no longer need to fear the unknown because I have the known. I have the Lord Jesus and I am his. And he is the one who I live for and the one who has come to bring redemption. And so I believe that God exists and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and I am convinced that this is a message that the world needs to know. Because if it's true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes unto the Father except by him, then the world needs to know that. And we can't rest until the message of the gospel reaches around the world to those who are following other religions or no religion and even in our own communities in the secularism of our society and as we move into more and more of a post-Christian society to recognize, no, this is a message that people need to know. People need to hear the gospel. People need to know that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the way to God and that it, then there's a fire that burns within us to, to bring that message to the world. And we recognize that there is a purpose. There's a, God has a program. God has a plan. There, he, he has a plan for humanity and he started back there with Adam and Eve and then Abram and he has this plan of redemption and he's bringing that message to the world and and, and it, it culminates in that great multitude before the throne from every tribe and every language and every nation. And you know, when I read a, a novel, I like to read the first chapter or two and kind of get the setting and the main characters. And then I like to read the last chapter because then I know how it turns out. I know who marries who and I know what happens. And so then I can relax while I read the book because I don't, I mean, the hero can be tied up on the railroad track and the train whistle can be blowing and it's to get to the end of the chapter, it's 11 o'clock at night, I can just lay it down and go to sleep. I'm not worried about him because he was alive in the last chapter. So I don't know how he gets off the railroad track, but I know he does somehow. And so I'm not in a panic. I don't have to keep reading till three in the morning. I just, I, I know how it's gonna turn out. And uh, it doesn't spoil the, because they're still intrigued. Like I still wanna know how that happened, but I'm gonna find out. So uh, anyway, it's just, but you know what? I've read the end of the book. And at the end of the book, there's a great multitude before the throne. And that multitude is a multitude that is innumerable. So sometimes we fall into this thing of thinking of, well, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. And there's just, you know, 
it's going to be, you know, it's a really little thing. And we look at the church and it's this little thing that, you know, doesn't really have much significance. No, no, that's a, that's, that's a deception. Like, I don't know how it happens, but that great multitude, somehow that few that find it become an innumerable multitude from every tribe and every language and every nation. And that's going to be reality. It's, God is going to bring, that's going to happen. And our choice, it's, we're almost in a position like Esther was, where Mordecai comes to Esther and says, you can go to the king, but, you know, it's your choice. But if you choose not to go, God's going to bring salvation to his people from somebody else, and you're, you and your family are going to be forgotten. It's kind of like, we have this choice. God's building that great multitude before the throne. It's going to be more than just you and me and a couple of our cousins. It's going to be a lot of people from all over the world and all periods of time. And we can either be involved in building that multitude before the throne or we can sit by and let God use somebody else to do it. But it's going to happen. And I don't want to get there. I, don't, I probably will anyway. But I don't want to get there and say, well, if I would have known it was like this, I would have lived my life in a different way. Um, I want to have a perspective on eternity that, that dictates the way I live my life and the choices I make. And I want to be involved in what God is doing to build that multitude before the throne. That's the mission of the church. That's our task as believers is to spread the word of who Jesus is. It's not about, it's not about selling our program or selling our whatever. It's, it's about Jesus and people knowing who Jesus is. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, we thank you for your death, your resurrection, your willingness to come and live here among us. <clears throat> Lord, uh, we're grateful that you entrusted us with the task of spreading the good news of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as your followers to be committed to you, to be convinced of your identity and who you are and what you've done for us, to experience that forgiveness of sins and that hope of eternal life, that anticipation of what lies ahead. Lord, I pray that you would bless each of us in the decisions and the choices we make day by day as to how we live our lives and how we influence those around us and those that we encounter for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that it would be... Uh, uh, a bastion of faith in this community and I pray that as they build relationships in this community and as they uh, encounter people that live in this community that you would uh, help them to be uh, spreading the good news of the gospel and that in the spectrum of time of eternity that this church's existence in this community would make a difference as to who from this community is in that great multitude before the throne. I pray that you would uh, raise up out of this church men and women who will be pillars of the faith, men and women who will also take the gospel to places where it's not known, and men and women who will represent the gospel right here in this community and influence it as well for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.